Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Last week. The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and myself were in Ukraine to see what life is like on the ground in the country. All of those episodes are available to listen back to, including interviews with Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kyiv, Olga Stefanisha, deputy prime minister for European and Euro-Atlantic integration, and some more of our own reflections of our time exploring Kyiv, and for myself, Butcha. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today we discuss the latest updates from the front lines of the invasion of Ukraine, look at the shipment of Ukrainian grain that left Odessa this morning, and we examine how the Russian economy might be in a far worse position than the Kremlin pretends. Finally, after reporting from Kyiv, I sat down with Anna Vertsen, who had previously shown me around the city to reflect on everything we had seen. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 1st of August, day 159. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and economics reporter, Louis Ashworth. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Um, just, just quickly, it was a bit. It was last week. It was last Thursday, actually. But we need to mark it because we, because um, you and I were on the road out in in Ukraine last week. We didn't. Uh, we weren't able to mark this on on Friday, but we should shouldn't let it pass that last Thursday was a there was a horrendous um, horrendous or two horrendous incidents in yeah, that came to light from from Ukraine. The first was the um, the attack on an area in, in Donbass, um, Olenivska. This is an area in the self-proclaimed uh, Donetsk People's Republic, uh, an area that's been that was holding over 50, thought to be over, around 53 Ukrainian prisoners of war, many from the Azovstal plant, the, the Mariupol plant you may remember from a few months ago. Um, this site was attacked by munitions unknown and people unknown and uh, completely destroyed. So over 50 people killed there, 50 of the uh, Ukrainian um, prisoners of war. Now, this is this is absolutely against the Geneva Convention. Um, if you are a prisoner of war, you are um, protected. You should be protected by the the uh, power that's holding you. You should also be removed from the combat zone as quickly as, as possibly, in a, you know, as, as expeditious a manner as possible. So 
bearing in mind if they had been taken from the Azov-style plant, these people shouldn't have been there. These men should have been moved well to the rear uh, weeks ago, so they shouldn't have been there. And secondly, I mean, Russia are blaming Ukraine for this. They're blaming Ukraine and they're, and they're saying it was a high Mars attack. So the high Mars, the high mobility artillery rocket system, the very precise, very long range weapons that had been supplied by America. And I think this was a this was a uh, an effort by Russia to discredit both Ukraine and also um, the high Mars as a as a weapon system. Now, Ukraine said it wasn't them, said it was Russia. It was a, a false flag attack. They said this location in um, what they're calling the tempor- temporarily occupied territory of um, you know the Donetsk self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic has, was long known as a as a holding facility. Um, so there's no way they would have targeted. It. And if you look at the look at the photographs from the site, it was literally just the 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 small part of uh, the small building where these these men were being held that was destroyed in that facility in that location. So it was a very precise strike. Um, and Ukraine is saying, well, if if they were going to you know, why target that particular area that was known to be a holding facility? They just simply wouldn't have done it. And the suggestion is, and and some evidence, some evidence to suggest that the the way that the, the building has been, um, well, not blown apart. Basically, HIMARS would vastly destroy the entire place, whereas this has been the structure is largely intact and it's been um, subject to an intense fire. That is a very different a different uh, munition to HIMARS, and the suggestion is that it was it was a Russian thermobaric weapon that 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 causes mass mass fires and 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 will destroy the place from within. Because if you look at the look at some of the the pictures that helpfully have been put out by Russia, um, there are sort of neat rows of, of beds still in place, albeit just the metal bed frames. But um, you know, everything's been burnt to a cinder. But you can see the metal bed frames all all lined up, and th- and they would have been utterly destroyed and scattered over a large area if it had been a high Mars attack. So it, it looks like it looks like it was a Russian attack. Now, why would they do it um, if these men have been uh, were, were from the Azovstal plant, the, the big steel plant down in in Mariupol, then if they'd ever come home in, in some sort of prisoner swap or uh, years to come, they would, of course, have been feted as as heroes. And I think Russia was calculating, or the suggestion is Russia's calculating, they just couldn't handle the the propaganda victory that would have been for, for Ukraine. So so a disgraceful um, episode. I mean, you, 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 it's going to be very difficult to get any evidence out of, it, out of that area soon. So you've kind of got to just sort of take your money, take your choice sort of thing or who you think is, is responsible. But but regardless of who was responsible, and I personally think it was Russia, but but regardless of who was responsible, those men should not have been there under the Geneva Convention. As I say, they should have been moved to a rear area um, as quickly as possible to, to uh, maintain their safety. So that was number one. And secondly, there was a, there was footage of a, of a gross attack Russian soldiers holding down a Ukrainian soldier um, and, and uh, subjecting him to a, to a, an absolutely horrific attack um where he, he was castrated with a, a bolt uh, with a um, a box cutting knife i mean just just disgusting and this went out on on a russian telegram channel and then was um you know was 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 leaked more widely on social media so it's just just yet more evidence of the dehumanizing aspect of this war and um, and the way that um uh, there's just mounting evidence of increasing war crimes just running all the way through the whole chain of command from from um, the individual sick individuals at ground level up through a, an utterly morally bankrupt, um, intellectually corrupt organisation that, that would plan 
plan an attack on prisoners of war. So, so not a good way to start the week off, I'm afraid. That was last week. There's a number of different bits and, pop, uh, bits and bobs happened over the weekend, but I'll just take a little pause there because I think I'm going to run into the grain issue, which I think we're going to discuss more broadly, but I'll, I'll just take a little pause there. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, uh, Louis, let's turn to you, Louis Ashworth. Um, big moment this morning. The first shipment carrying Ukrainian grain has set off from the port of Odessa. Um, can you tell us about this? What's happening and why is it significant? Uh, hi, yes. And thank you for having me on, David. Um, and it's good to have you back. Um, so, yeah, the, the Rizzoni, which is a uh, Sierra Leone flagged cargo ship, set off from Odessa at 7.15 this morning. Um, this is a significant event. It's the first sort of movement of a ship um, following the agreement that was reached between Russia, Ukraine and Turkey. Sort of Turkey brokered deal that was signed uh, on July 22nd in Istanbul. Um, so this ship has, has moved out. It's loaded with corn um, and it's heading to Lebanon. Um, this is uh, significant in and of itself because it's the first shipment via the Black Sea that Ukraine has been able to make since the conflict first began. Um, and we're expecting it to hopefully be the first of many further shipments. There are, um, according to uh, Alexander Kubikov, who is the uh, Ukraine's infrastructure minister, there are about 16 ships that are, that are ready to go. And what we're expecting to see occur from here is uh, a number of ships that have been for for the last few months sort of docked docked at various ports on the Black Sea are going to form caravans and will go out together in those kind of in those caravans to make deliveries. Um, this is a this is a huge deal because uh, as I'm sure many listeners recall, um, a big part of this entire conflict has been that it's knocked out what is known as one of the breadbaskets of the world. You know, Ukraine and also the adjacent region of Russia is a hugely important area for the production of a lot of um, a lot of uh, grain products and also um, uh, sunflower oil. Um, and that entire supply was basically been knocked out by the conflict. And what we're seeing here is are the first signs that some of that capacity is coming back online, which is which is hugely important because the um, the the market for grains has been very very tight over the last months. It hasn't been made any easier by the fact that there's been a uh, a heat wave in Europe and also North America. Um, so overall. In the context of the huge inflationary pressures that are being felt in several parts of the world, this is this is a very this is a very um, important step that this has occurred. Thanks, Louis. Um, Dom, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Um, may, maybe comment on the uh, the the claim from from Russians that uh, Sevastopol suffered a, a, a drone attack um, over the weekend as well. Yeah, so Sevastopol, a big port in, on uh, in Crimea. Um, Russia saying there was a drone attack there. I, I don't think anyone was killed. I think it's five five injured, but um, uh, they're suggesting that was that was Ukraine. There was a, a naval facility there, I believe, in in Sevastopol. Now, whether or not that was, um, I can't see how that would necessarily be linked necessarily to grain. I mean, we know Russia, and I'll mention in a moment. Russia like marking these events, marking notable sort of developments with a little a little knee jerk um, kidney punch around the side. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily Ukraine, how Ukraine has been operating. So I, I don't, not quite entirely sure what happened in Sevastopol, but there, there are reports that a, a drone strike has wounded a number of people. But in, in relation to the actual grain shipment today out of Odessa, um, and Alexander Kubikov saying that this, this could be the first of, of many, I mean, it's the first of 16 under current plans, but he's saying that, that, that we should be able to, or they should be able to um, look forward to uh, going grain out of Mikhailov in the future. I think that might be a little bit ambitious for now. Let's see how this first one goes. I mean, this this move has already been supported on social media by Boris Johnson, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, Liz Truss, who's the um, you know, vying to be the next uh, Prime Minister of, of the UK, um, and the EU as well have, have supported it. 
Um, so what 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 should we expect from Russia? Because this this obviously is the this is one of the big um, issues, big international issues. Uh, we saw last week Sergei Lavrov um, in various African countries courting opinion there and and, and bolstering Russian support and, and, and no doubt saying that the reason for many of the many of the countries not getting the, the green shipments they would have hoped for is Ukraine. NATO, Nazis, the West, yeah, insert baddie here type thing. So Russia have been under pressure for months now to, to allow the grain out. And and I think that this will not go this will not go unmolested, uh, this issue. So what should we expect from Russia? I I think there will be there will be at some point in the near future, maybe not on this very first shipment, but I think there will be a an accident in the Black Sea. I think uh, um one of the grain vessels might hit a might hit a mine. The Russia will say this is a legacy Ukraine mine, and I suggest people keep an eye on H.I. Sutton's uh, Twitter feed. That's Covert Shores, the Twitter feed. He's he's absolutely all over the naval matters, especially Russian submarine activity. So I think I think that we should keep an eye on there. Um, what else should we look at? Well, of course, over the weekend, Mikolaev was was subjected to a, a big attack, a big um, artillery attack, in which the a tycoon, Alexei Faditurski, and his wife were killed. And he, um, Mr. Faditurski, was a was a, a big tycoon in the in the Ukraine's uh, grain industry. So I think this was uh, a targeted strike. From the images of his house, it was a it was a very precise strike. The houses left and right were untouched. It was a very um, it was it was either an extremely uh, a stream, extremely poor accident, bad luck, but um, but I don't think it was. Uh, what else should we look at? Well, a little bit wider. There is there is currently a lot of tension between Serbia and Kosovo. Serbia historically very close to Russia. Um, now, this on the face of it has nothing to do with with Ukraine, and and I'm not directly linking the two. This is the immediate response for this, or the immediate the, the immediate catalyst for the problem. There has, has been um, border issues with Serbs moving into Kosovo. However, yeah, there there have there are now tensions. NATO have put out a press release this morning saying K4, that's the Kosovo force, the NATO force that's been there since the 1999 war. K4 is prepared to, this is a quote, prepared to intervene if stability is jeopardised, unquote. That's under the, the UN mandate that exists. Uh, and another quote says, K4 will take whatever measures are, measures are necessary to keep a safe and secure environment in Kosovo at all times, unquote. So whatever measures measures are necessary, what can I say that word? Whatever measures are necessary, that, that obviously includes armed action. So, you know, this could be, I'm not I'm not looking, I'm not a conspiracy theorist looking for reds under the beds in every angle. However, it is notable to say that that in the, the near abroad from Ukraine, a very close ally, Serbia, very close ally of Russia, um, having conflict with a, a NATO entity is possibly not unhelpful for Russia. Um, and just one other thing to notice is that on, on Sunday morning in Bulgaria, an arms depot went up in smoke. This arms depot is owned, owned by uh, Bulgarian arms dealer Emilian Gabrev, who himself, uh, he was poisoned in 2015. The Kremlin was implicated in that attack. And it, this follows uh, expulsion last year by Bulgaria of a Russian diplomat um, uh, citing four similar blasts of ammunition in, ammunition sites in the country that, that um, we know supply Ukraine, uh, four blasts over the last 10 years, and six, six Russian citizens, and they were suspected of being part of the GOU's Unit 29155, which is the, the lot that tried to um, kill Sergei Skripal in, in the UK with a nerve agent in, in May 2018. Um, that's, they are thought to have been responsible for those those ammunition blasts. So, so there's a number of ways I think Russia are 
are trying to hit back. So if things aren't going their way with the grain, i.e. they've been forced finally to allow grain out of the country, I think they are using um, whatever response they can in a different sphere, in a different time and place um, to to hit back. Um, I don't I don't know if this is all coordinated. I mean, I'm not suggesting certainly with the Serbia thing. I'm not suggesting that the, the tensions there with with K4 and NATO is directly linked to um, to Ukraine. Although it is, as I say, all helpful. But it's just very very notable that, that Russia does like to to um, lash out in a in a different sphere with with a different issue. Um, and a different scale and time when it when it suits uh, suits its purpose. So just just keep an eye on the wider on the wider diplomatic developments as this screen issue goes on. Thanks, Dom. Um, Louis, I'll come to you next, just because I know you've got some things to add on the grain issue. But Dom, very quickly, uh, the UK's Minister of Defence has said that it it thinks Russia is likely reallocating a significant number of its forces from the northern Donbass sector to the south uh, of Ukraine. Can you just talk us quickly through um, what they mean and why the Russians might be doing this? So since Russia was ejected from the north of the country in the, the first few weeks of the war, they then said, Putin said that actually all along the objective has been the Donbass, so to take the Donetsk and the Luhansk oblasts in the east of the east of the country. So after a few weeks, the Russian army regrouped and was pushing in into the east. And we've seen that over the last the last few months. Um, very slow, grinding, attritional movement, very artillery led, very heavy fires. I mean, most people are, are being killed on both sides, being killed by artillery. There's, there's not a lot of direct uh, close contact between infantry or armoured forces, what have you. It's mostly artillery that's doing all the killing. And uh, Russia did make gains and, and took the town, the, the strategic town of um, Severodonetsk um, and Isichansk in the east. But but really, you know, at huge cost, firstly, and, and, and not at a pace that we would expect a, a, an army of Russia's size. Since then, the HIMARS and other multiple launch rocket systems and other heavy weaponry have flowed into Ukraine and they were able to target ammunition dumps, command and control centres, fuel depots in the in Russia's rear and, and absolutely ground their advance to a halt. So in the centre, if you like, the, the centre of the of the country, the Donbass region, that battlefield has moved very little in the last few weeks. Meanwhile, in the south around Kherson, which was the first city, the only notable city actually, the only, the, or the big the biggest piece of urban terrain that Russia has taken from Ukraine in this in this war, um, Ukrainian forces have been pushing back. Now these are these are local counterattacks at the moment. It hasn't yet morphed into a into a large counteroffensive. Um, a counterattack can be small raiding parties. It can be you know, small mo- mobile troops with vehicles or on foot, just testing, probing defences. A counteroffensive is an entirely different ball game. I mean, you've got to have everything backed up there. You've got to you've got to knit all your forces together. You've got to have a long term plan. You've got to have a few other plans up your sleeve for when the first one goes wrong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think what we've been seeing in the south is these probing attacks, looking for any weak points and just just testing to see where where Russia uh, will potentially falter. And this has obviously gone, uh, part of this has been the, the destruction thought to be by Heimars of the bridges over the Dnieper River. And there's a very a small contingent of Russian forces that have made it north and west of the Dnieper River. And that's a strategically advantageous position. So to cut them off is, is quite helpful from Ukraine's point of view. And the South is the fight. I mean, it's one thing to say Russia wants to take the Donbass, the, the Russian, largely Russian-speaking area, of Ukraine, but the South is where the fight is. I mean, we're seeing that today with the grain shipment. Russia wants to take the South so that Ukraine is is then no longer a viable, economically prosperous 
you know, independent, successful state. So the South is the fight. Obviously, the South also leads directly to Crimea. So Ukraine needs to prioritise the South, and I think is prioritising the South, and Russia as a consequence of the recent attacks and possibly of the of the um, the, the grinding nature of the war in the Donbass and how Ukraine in, in that area would have to really get a, a huge numbers of, of armoured forces, which they don't currently have, to make any territorial gains there. So Ukraine don't seem likely to, to push against Russia in the Donbass anytime soon. And so Russia, I think, have calculated that they can move some forces and need to move forces from that area down to the south to shore up Kherson and shore up the, um, the any future emerging threat to Crimea. Now, this one might be this might be absolute super bluff counter bluff from from Ukraine to get Russia to start splitting its forces. I mean, these are hundreds of kilometers apart. So to move vehicles and move personnel and the whole logistic tail from the center to the south and then maybe back up again if there's another attack in the Donbass or or maybe further north around Kharkiv. I mean, this might be Ukraine trying to wear out Russia's logistical system by getting them to move. Um, we don't know. Or it might be genuinely that, that they are building up in the south for an attack on Kherson and, and Russia have to have to move to to bolster their defences there. But, I mean, it's, it's interesting that we're now talking about Russia bolstering its defences rather than going on sweeping armoured advances through the, the, the you know, flat Ukrainian countryside. I mean, th- that sort of says where where we are currently with the war. So I think it's very interesting to take a to, to keep a firm eye on what's happening there in the south and to see whether or not any of these local counterattacks are are morphed together into into a wider counteroffensive. Thanks, Tom. I mean, you talked, you 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 said several things that we sort of touched on the macro, the market implications of of grain movement and the economy in Ukraine South. Uh, Louis, I don't know if you want to come in on that before we talk more broadly about the Russian economy. Thanks, David. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the really important things I think to take away from this is to remember that one of the biggest victims of this conflict outside of outside of obviously you know the 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 people of ukraine has has actually been people living in areas like the middle east and north africa these areas that historically have been very very reliant upon ukraine's grain exports um as as a sort of staple food stuff and i think it's actually very important that we're seeing this first grain shipment going out to lebanon um, because Lebanon, um, you know, since at least 2019, has been in a financial crisis. Uh, you know, we, we obviously here in the UK, we're wringing our hands over inflation, running at 9.4%. I think the latest available official figures for Lebanon put inflation there at around 210%. So you're talking about prices sort of tripling in a year. Um, it's been it's, it's added further excruciation to a very difficult time for, for the Lebanese people. Um, and so it's very important that we're seeing on a sort of humanitarian level that we're seeing this food um, go out again. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just been the Ukraine conflict that's caused troubles in the global grain market. We saw um, prices on the sort of the, the UN uh, food agricultural organizations um, in the indices of food prices hit a record high in the direct aftermath of the conflict. They then, in sort of April, May, they were cooling off a little bit and we were seeing a sort of sustained period of falling prices. But in recent days, we've seen a bit of a reversal again, um, or recent, week, re- recent weeks rather. And that's because the, you know, the, the, the very extreme weather that we've been experiencing, obviously I'm sure any listeners who are in the UK and several other parts of the world will be aware of just how hot things have got recently. Um, that is the uh, you know the, the most visible part of what actually has been a very sustainedly dry 2022 so far, and um, and that is expected to really knock 
um, crop yields in in Europe and in North America, for instance, uh, France is a huge wheat producer um, and has seen these sort of very almost drought-like conditions for a lot of this year. Um, Michael Michael Magdavitz, who's a senior commodities analyst at, at Rabobank, um, reckons that if the if the corridor is able to be sustained through the Black Sea, um, we'll see corn exports. Um, more than double uh, out of Ukraine. Obviously, as we've discussed before, they've had some other ways, mainly sort of land land based options like trains to transport uh, to transport grains out during this during this conflict. Um, yeah, so um, Michael expects these exports to double. That would be enough to uh, offset the shortfall that has been from uh, from the US and the EU. So hugely significant in terms of the global picture. I mean that that will be the difference between um, between there being there being grain or not in some parts of the world. So it's it's very important. Um, uh, he says uh, if this corridor proves even reasonably successful, it will go a long way to alleviating shortages of grains across Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Um, so, very important element to that there, um, and it is one of those things where I'm, I'm sure that the conflict of the, um, the, the the timing of this conflict with this particularly difficult year for general grain production is is a coincidence. It would have been I'm quite sure too early to know how difficult this year was going to be at the time when Russia invaded, but it really has piled on the pain from from this particular this particular sort of element of the element of the conflict. Um, the big question now is going to be, um, how, you know, as, as, as Dom said, are we going to see a sustained period of these ships being able to consistently um, traverse the Black Sea? Is there going to be an event soon in which a uh, ship is damaged, destroyed, people are injured, hurt, shipment is lost? Um, and, and if that does occur, will that lead to um, sort of you know, co- cold feet among traders? Will they not want to risk the Black Sea route? So it's a very important thing to watch. And, and it's, it's a... Um, you know, there's there's a market element to it, there's an economic element to it, but there really is a very strong humanitarian element to it because if, if for as long as these shipments are blocked, it's it's torturous for people in some parts of of particularly North Africa. It's an extremely difficult situation for them. So so it's 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 good for the market that we're seeing this this supply come back online. It's it's very good for for some people, and so we can only really hope that this is sustainable. Thank you, Louis. Louis, you've been coming on these spaces in this podcast for months now, um, always talking about the the economy. And we've been looking in some detail uh, at the Russian economy. You've been sort of tracking it, I think, for the past few months, looking at the impact of sanctions, uh, looking at the impact of of the exodus of Western firms. Um, You wrote an article last week. uh, The lead quote is that the Russian economy has been crippled at every level. But you you argue that potentially it's it's actually worse than than what the Kremlin are saying. Could you give us a sense of just how bad uh, the Russian economy has got uh, since since the start of the war? Sure. So... There's a very important sort of narrative going on here, in that obviously, uh, you know, as as you know, Dom has intricately described, there the complexities and the back and forth of this land war that is going on. There's also been this hugely important backdrop of uh, the sort of the, the sanctions war behind everything, the the Russia versus the West financial clash, and one of the things that's sort of it's to, to massively simplify the narrative of that, as it's tended to be, it's been. The West hits Russia extremely hard with sanctions at the beginning of the conflict. The ruble plunges. Russia is expected to be devastated. And then we saw a few weeks after that, we started to realize how bad the inflation impact was going to be. 
we started to realize how bad the growth impact was going to be. We started to realize how expensive all the things associated with this are. And we also started to get to realize just how resilient Russia's economy is. And that's kind of developed into a um, into a narrative from some some corners of Russia is Russia is winning the financial conflict. And there's always been something of, of, a, of a mirage. I mean, people have been making this argument a lot in, in, in recent days. Um, one, one thing people look at a lot when they're talking about this, um, or two things rather, one, one is these interconnected factors. One is the strength of the ruble, which uh, after, after plunging at the start of the conflict, very quickly uh, regained ground and actually has become strong to an extent where it's worrying for Russia. A lot of people will look simply at the ruble and say, the ruble is strong, Russia is doing well. Russia is winning, and it's it's far more complicated than that. For, uh, uh, there's in terms of the ruble itself, it's there's at least three important things to take into account. One of which is that the ruble strength is purely a function of of Russia's, or largely a function of Russia's trade trade surplus. The second part of that is that uh, what may be the theoretical exchange rate for a ruble in Russia um, is not necessarily how much a ruble is actually worth, um, and that's because of the third factor, which is rubles are not that useful if you've been so sufficiently sanctioned that you can't spend your rubles on as much. So just to get some issues there. The other side of it, a lot of people will look at Russia's trade surplus and say, Russia's trade surplus hit a record high in, in, at the start of this year. Um, therefore, they must be doing really well. They don't need the West. Um, a factor of that is that uh, Russia's exports have, have boomed because of how expensive oil is. But you can't look at a trade surplus as only one side. Russia's imports have dropped extremely sharply. We're not quite sure how sharply, but it appears to be quite severe. Um, and that that is not a good thing. It is not a good thing if your country's... You, you, th- there's a maybe very simple way of looking at it where you say, uh, oh, I'm not as reliant on other people. That's a good thing. Uh, the simple fact is that if you were importing large amounts of products and suddenly you stop, it is a sign of something going very wrong in your economy. I mean, if if, if one day you, David, were to decide to not do your weekly supermarket shop, you wouldn't be patting yourself on the back saying, oh, yes, I've become extremely self-reliant. You'd probably be quite hungry. And a sort of extension of that is what is what is occurring in Russia. Um, we've, we've seen uh, some of this optimism though in some ways about Russia's economy being reflected in in forecasts the IMF um, last week adjusted its forecast for Russia um, to say that it expects Russia's economy to contract just 6% this year um, that's substantially less steep than, than earlier predictions were um, and it all similarly the IMF says uh, that Russian exports have been holding up better than expected and that domestic demand is stronger than expected a very interesting paper that's come into this is one that's been released by by Yale um, uh, recently, which is it's been conducted by Yale's chief executive leadership, leadership institute. Um, what they've done basically is they've looked beyond the the headline figures that are being released by the Kremlin. And an important thing to note here is that the Kremlin has significantly reduced the amount of data that it's re- that it's releasing um, since the conflict began. Which, if 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 anything is going to give you a signal that something might be awry, I would say a government hiding a bunch of data is an important one. So what these what these uh, analysts at Yale did is they looked at um, a sort of range of other um, other data sources, most of which are sort of ones that are beyond the Kremlin's influence. So they looked at um, non-public analyses, analyses carried out by investment banks. They looked at certain kinds of bespoke high-frequency data that um, other private companies are putting together. They've looked at the sort of um, 
releases by uh, international partners. So rather than looking at Russia's side of the stats on things like trade, they've looked at the stats from other countries. Um, and uh, and they've also been through a cache of, of sort of Russian documents and internal memos and that kind of thing. And, and the conclusion they've come to, is, as you said, is that is that Russia's economy is being is being catastrophically crippled. Um, they they say that uh, domestic production in Russia has has come to a complete standstill, and uh, and its imports have have collapsed. And this is a very this is a very difficult thing you know obviously they're having to work around with unusual data sources they've been having to they can't simply go through the official channels here but their conclusion is that um this idea that's been building up and has been spouted by some that russia's economy is actually doing you know actually doing fine is is a complete illusion um uh they, they say kremlin finances are in much much more dire straits than conventionally understood um it's a really interesting um report it can be uh found if you if you look up uh yale's chief executive leadership institute you can read this report online it's very interesting they go very in depth about the things that they've looked at and the ways that they've um the ways that they've uh, sort of analyzed this data one of their big one of their big findings is that um the exit of it. So about about a thousand companies are thought to have exited Russia since the conflict began. A thousand Western companies. Um, they say that's wiped out revenues and revenues and investments exceeding six hundred billion dollars, which is equivalent to about forty percent of Russian GDP. Now, uh, the relationship between company investments and GDP is a little bit complicated because GDP uh, is is sort of it's an annual output thing. It's not a kind of sustained investment thing, but it's uh, it gives a sense of the scale of the exit that's occurred. Um, the analysts say this, this isn't going to have an immediate impact necessarily. It's not going to, you know, the, the exit of McDonald's isn't going to cause Russia's economy to collapse, but it's going to force them into a sort of unwanted and voluntary economic transformation. Um, it's going to cause you know, huge, huge um, dislocation of staff. It's going to lead to a lot of sort of stranded resources. There's a lot of potential investment that would have occurred that will now not occur. All these things add up. Um, I mean, their assessment of it is uh, that the Kremlin has basically been cherry-picking the data that it sets out, and it's made Russia look a lot better than things actually are. So, very interesting, very interesting report. As I said, I'd really encourage people to go out and, and give it a read. Um, and it's offering a very, uh, a very interesting, I would say, quite compelling uh, sort of counterpoint to that narrative that that has been building that that Russia is somehow winning the ep- economic war here. That was masterful, Louis. Thank you. I've just got one question. If if this report um, is reliable and is, you know, for the most part correct in its conclusions, what do you think we will start seeing in the Russian economy and the Russian government in the next few weeks and months? What kind of steps might we see being taken? What kind of, um, yeah, I mean, what, what kind of events, if the Russian economy is doing the, uh, far worse than people think or, or that they're saying, how will that manifest itself in the next few months? It's it's a difficult one to say, and and if we're to follow the premise of this report, and also I mean if we're to follow the sort of general modus operandi of the Kremlin, we might not expect them to be super transparent about what it is that they're doing. But the the Kremlin, if they are experiencing this economic slowdown, will be looking at ways that they can they can support their domestic economy, they can support demand. So a couple of very typical ways you'd look at that would be some kind of fiscal stimulus from the Kremlin, which they may. They may not want to be hugely upfront about it. They may be wanting to find ways that they can channel more money into the economy quietly. Um, the other part of this is um, interest rates. So uh, Russia's interest rates um, were cranked up and were made, were made very high at the beginning of the conflict because they wanted to strengthen the ruble. 
um, they've then been able to sort of generally sort of uh, peel back that increase and and lower interest rates uh, in order to curb the rubles gain. If the economy needs stimulation, then then the typical approach would be to continue to, to continue to cut interest rates, because by cutting interest rates, you lower the cost of borrowing and therefore you stimulate activity because people borrow more and they spend more. And also by lowering uh, by by lowering interest rates, you'd make it less lucrative for investors to hold rubles, and therefore that would weaken the ruble and make uh, and make Russia's exports more competitive. Um, those are sort of the two things we might expect to see. So I think the future. I think the first part of that, the fiscal side of it, uh, we may not quickly get a clear idea of what, if anything, is being done there. Uh, the monetary side of it, the interest rates, uh, that that is public. R- Russia can't really can't really hide what its central bank is 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 doing um, without sort of utterly destroying its 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 credibility so it will be interesting to see whether they attempted to for instance you know cut uh, interest rates to lower than where they were before the conflict began and, and if they do that that is a probably a good sign that the economy needs needs stimulation thank you louis i know that dom has a question for you as well i do i do hi louis um if the or absent any great breakthrough on the battlefield for either side and i don't i don't see that happening anytime soon um in the next few months could you give us an idea of of how important this this proposed imf loan to ukraine of up to 20 billion would be for for keeping them in the fight just keeping their economy going to keep them in the fight such that when the the military situation changes in due course they are still there to be able to take advantage of that military situation thanks tom yeah it's it's a it's a difficult one i mean my uh, you, I mean, uh, j- journalists, I think, often aren't always the best at predicting things. I I am surprised that the situation in Ukraine has been allowed to, to go the way that it has in terms of um, defaults being allowed to occur in Ukraine. I would have thought there would have been a... Given, given the extent to which, during this conflict, we've seen Western financial institutions break norms and take steps they wouldn't normally do... I was expecting to see some kind of earlier action, um, sort of sort of pre-forgiveness for for Ukrainian default. Uh, as it stands, as you said, uh, Ukraine is going is having to go to the IMF for um, for money, and is and there have been um, defaults in some elements of of of, of, U- of Ukrainian operations. Um, it, it, it's still a difficult one. the the IMF The IMF bailout is needed whether whether if it didn't occur ukraine would simply stop working is a sort of it, it's complicated because again it, it's hard to know how strongly ukraine's creditors would have chased uh would have chased uh debts that debts debts that defaulted um having the money there is very important i think there probably will be perhaps more of a temptation from the West to provide more direct financial support uh, as a result of this. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of you know, um, shutting the door after the horse has bolted a little bit. But uh, I think an intervention need, needed to be done early here. In the event, it sort of, it wasn't. This default has been allowed to happen. They, they had to go to the IMF. Um, it's not a very good look. Um, I, I would say it's difficult to say. It, it, it is needed, though. I am just, I'm just surprised that it happened. Louis, before we move to our final thoughts from Dom and yourself, is there anything else about the Russian economy or indeed the Ukrainian economy you think our listeners should know uh, today? 
Oh, so one of the one of the other interesting things that we've had going on. I mean, I spoke a few weeks ago about um, the the trade in in Russian oil. Um, just as a sort of quick summary, uh, I mean, Russian Russian seaborne oil is going to be sanctioned by the EU from the end of this year. At which point, it will be um, illegal to transport sell Russian oil with, within within Europe. Um, uh, we've also seen a lot of uh, companies and countries uh, essentially self-sanctioning and and not accepting Russian oil. Um, one interesting development that's occurred recently is uh, analysts at Lloyd's List, which is a sort of maritime intelligence firm associated with Lloyd's of London, which is the sort of big insurance market in London, um, have tracked a number of a number of vessels that basically have they've created a kind of um, Im- uh, sort of improvised uh, dock area in in the in the Mid Atlantic. So what's happened is a a company based in in China has leased a number of old uh, VLCCs, which are basically these sort of supersized oil oil tankers, and has docked them together in the in the Atlantic. And what ships are doing is they're they're leaving ports in in Russia, they're heading they're heading round into the Atlantic, and uh, sort of quite far off in international waters off the coast from Portugal. They are they are docking next to these next to these Chinese um, tankers, transferring their oil on the high seas, and then those tankers are carrying on off um, off towards East Asia, which is a very, well, I mean, analysts say analysts say un- unprecedented thing to do. I mean, it's it's dangerous enough to transfer goods between two ships in the middle of the sea. To do it in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean is is hugely dangerous. These I mean, these ships are almost certainly. Um, they're not being insured in any major market. Um, analysts say that they are going to be having to use their own sort of specially trained crews in order to carry out these actions. It's a very strange sort of clandestine operation, and it's. Um, we spoke a few weeks ago about how how important this kind of um, uh, undercover undercover market for Russian oil uh, is likely to become as the world as the world kind of weans itself off Russian oil, and and there become sort of fewer and fewer people who are willing to accept it. Um, but this is very um sort of interesting development that, that they would go to these kind of extremes to create a kind of um impromptu flotilla in 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 the middle of uh you know a very a very calamitous ocean in order to make these transfers and it shows how um how some uh, some companies in china are so keen to get their hands on this on this discounted russian crude russian oil has been trading it varies, but around the sort of thirty dollars a barrel discount to to Brent, which is the global the global benchmark. Um, you add that up; it's extremely lucrative, and, and and we know that Chinese companies have been trying to get their hands on that. So, um, so interesting to see how that is continuing to develop. Well, thank you, Lou. That's that's an extraordinary development. So, just 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 to so we think that it's mainly what Chinese companies buying this oil from this flotilla in the in the Atlantic, or other other parties as well. Um, so, so the the tankers that have been that have been leased um, are all affiliated with um, with one. There's one company based in um, uh, Delian, which is a uh, which is a Chinese city. Um, not not much is known beyond that. It's it's sort of it's registered to an address. I think it's a sort of shell company of some some description based there. We don't know much more about who's actually behind it. Um, there have been. There's a precedent for China being willing to being willing to get its hands dirty when it comes to sanctioned oil. Um, we China has for a number of years um, found ways to get its hands on particularly Iranian oil shipments. So 
it's likely similar players, big Chinese companies who obviously are acting with the, um, I guess, the, the, the implicit approval of, of, of Beijing carrying out these kind of actions. But for now, we, we don't know for sure. We can't say. Well, thank you very much, Louis, and thank you, Dom. It just goes for me to ask you both for your final thoughts. What should our listeners be uh, thinking of and looking to over the next few days in the invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think there's going to be a bit of blowback from Russia about about grain. They're not going to allow this to go unmarked. And I, I wonder if the, the, the issues I spoke of earlier in, in Bulgaria and, and uh, Kosovo and what have you, are there are their answer to it they, they seem at one stage removed if indeed they are connected so i think there will be there will be something that might be putin's speech yesterday in st petersburg for navy day when he was talking about some amazing new missile that's hypersonic and it's going to do this and it's going to do that and i, I sort of zoned out to be honest so i'm not quite sure if that was it but I th- there will be some kind of response from russia Maybe not immediately, but I think they, I think we should keep an eye on the Black Sea. Like I say, um, have a look at Covert Shores on Twitter. H Sutton there, great, great analyst, and and keeping a very firm eye on all things that are happening there. Um, so that would be my response. Thank you, Dom. And Louis, would you like the final words? I'm, I think I'm likely to echo Dom a lot here. It's it's as said, there are there are 16 ships um, that are that are still waiting or, or are currently basically in the queue to try and go through the Black Sea. Um, if they make it out, the amount of grain that they're going to carry is equivalent to to half of the exports that Ukraine, the, the grain exports that Ukraine has been able to get out since the war began. So we're talking about 16 ships carrying about 15% of what, other, what otherwise has taken five months to do. So it's going to be an incredible uptick in, in exports that has a huge impact for the rest of the world if, if they're able to go ahead. And I think um, people are going to be watching and, and praying that those ships make it through safe. That was Louis Ashworth, our economics reporter, finishing off today's live segment. Last Tuesday, I met up with Anna Wurzen, who showed me around Kyiv, pointing out places of interest, and we talked a lot about the war and how it impacted the capital and its life. Feelings because this is uh, Michael Square. This is a very memorable place for our revolution in 2014, and the Michael, St. Michael's Church is also very memorable. At the end of my time in Kyiv, we met for lunch, and I took the opportunity to ask her a few questions, looking back over the week, and her thoughts about what might be to come. Just sitting outside having a milkshake uh, with Anna Wilson. It's lovely to see Anna again. You'll remember Anna, she showed me, her key showed me around various different places in the capital. We're meeting up again. Uh, we've had a lovely lunch here in Kiev Food Market. We're sitting outside in the cafe, and it's absolutely beautiful. And, and I mean, I, I guess the first thing to observe is just it's... There are moments now when the war feels so far away. We had an air raid alert this morning that we, that we all heard. Like six, six air raids. Yeah, in, in the early morning, yeah. How, how do you sort of live that? On the one hand, the, the sort of normalness of this, of what we're doing sitting outside having a milkshake, and, but also dealing with the, the stress and the sort of the awfulness of, of the war. I think we get used with it. Like, uh, okay, we have to hide for a while, wait for a while just to look at the news, what happened or didn't happen. We get used to it and uh, we have a thought that what, what else we should do, like stop, to, stop living, stop existing, just wait. No, we, we have our lives, we have our jobs, we have our duties, we have to work, we have to pay our taxes to support armies. So we're keep going, just keep going. 
And today's today's a special day in Ukraine, Statehood Day. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What what is it? Um, there are two. Today is also day when Kiev Rus was baptized. So it was in 10th century, 998, and Knyaz uh, Volodymyr in Kiev baptized everyone around. But there is uh, another side of this holiday that the date was basically made up by the uh, Soviet time authorities. So we don't know where then exactly this happened. So the statehood day, it's uh, modern time, modern uh, holiday, if you can say so. Mm. And it's, it's not something you said earlier that, you know, people don't really celebrate it, but they're aware of it. It's a sort of Yes, yes, official. people don't really celebrate it well because it's not very proper date to celebrate. So when you don't know the exact date, what is uh, the matter of celebrating it? Historians very often say, like, it's wrong to celebrate this date and uh, all the uh, authorities. It's um, one of the things we have, like, from the uh, Soviet times mm. and we have to get rid of this. Uh, Soviet time holidays made up just artificially uh, but uh, also the uh, amount of air raid sirens and amount of the attacks and all the shellings that happened today I was discussing this with my friends and family this is a very nice wait from I think Russians think so to uh, celebrate this day with us, day of Ukrainian statehood and this day of when the uh, Kyivrus was baptized. So they are celebrating it like this way because they really want to be a part of this history. It's more important for them to be a part of like when the Kyivrus was baptized. Uh, they they telling that uh, our Knyaz Volodymyr, he was uh, Russian and all this stuff. So it's uh, a part of their Russian world and the uh, propaganda of Russian world and also church propaganda. It's very complicated. They, they try and as much as possible to erase us mm-hmm. and to replace us with themselves and to show this link to our history and our state. Anna, when you were showing me around the city um, on Tuesday, what were you sort of... Pr- I mean, you're an archaeologist by training, um, yeah. historian. What were you proudest of to, to show me? What did you really want sort of people to hear about and to, to talk about? Well, um, I think we have uh, such rich culture, such rich history, and uh, I think uh, we should tell the world, the world more about us. So. Uh, you visited St. Sophia Cathedral and uh, it's part of the UNESCO heritage and we have much more ancient uh, not only the buildings but cultural uh, and historical events and we should share with the world and this is also the way we can explain who we are our background our cultural background and uh, I think it's very important to popularize uh, the uh, history and archaeology uh, not only among Ukrainians it's also a very important part of education but uh, in the world uh, just telling about Ukraine who we are and explaining why we are who we are basically 
Anna, it's been absolutely lovely meeting you properly. Obviously, we spoke beforehand and now we're in Kiev. So, Dom and I did meet you. You showed me around the city. We, we couldn't be more grateful for your, for your help and your explanations and your, your guiding. It's, it's been really wonderful again to see you today. We'll, we'll come back. And when you're in London, do, do, do of course, let us know. Before we, before we head off, what's been your experience of showing us your city? How, how have you found it? Well, I'm, I'm, very, I'm extremely grateful to you for coming here, showing the world uh, what's, what happens, what's going on, how we live, because um, <laughs> that's very funny stuff, but nobody knows about us and who we are. And I've told you before that there is a common thought that we are some third country, third world country, and, but you saw us. We are digitalized, we are modern, we are active, we are, we are proud, and, uh, and yeah, it's very right thing now to show, to show all the aspects of our life, not only the war. War is what grabs the attention of the world, basically, but we are not only the war, we are more than that. And I really want people to come to Ukraine to see how, how beautiful our country is how rich it is and uh, that we are worth of coming here and uh, spending your precious time here so yeah thank you so much for telling the world what's going on and uh, for coming here not just looking at the photos and videos from ukraine but coming here you 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 felt the smell of burned vehicles russian tanks and others so it's another experience Yes, I mean, it's been an odd experience, I think, coming here. As I said, as I said at the beginning of this interview, that you walk down the street, you can see the, yeah, the electric trams, the people, the kids out you know, drinking the milkshakes. And for a second, you can just sort of forget. And then, like this, mor- this morning, you know, hearing the air raid siren, so that, that was my first time actually hearing, hearing it properly. It's an odd... It's a sort of, almost like a sort of double life. And as you said, you just yes. have to sort of... You don't really have an option, you've just got, you've just yeah. got to do it. But thank you so much for, for showing us around and um, for talking to us now. And we'll be here again, I'm certain. I'll be very glad to see you, to see you and to show you more. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and today on twitter Gemma farrell